This episode of The Tea Room deals with some heavy themes, including violence against women and rape. If this content is triggering for you, we suggest that you switch off now and browse one of our many other episodes or find something else more relaxing to do. You can also talk to someone 24 hours a day by calling 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-782. From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. Tens of thousands, maybe even 100,000 people, gathered in Australian capital cities on Monday to attend the March for Justice protest. There was a furious display of women who were opening up about their own experience of sexual harassment, sexism and sexual abuse. I speak to you today out of necessity. We are all here today, not because we want to be here, but because we have to be here. We fundamentally recognise the system is broken, the glass ceiling is still in place, and there are significant failings in the power structures within our institutions. We are here because it's unfathomable that we are still having to fight this same stale, tired fight. Today, Ruby Prosser Scully on the wounds from trauma that have reopened across the nation. Ruby, thanks for coming on the tea room. Thank you so much for having me, Francine. Ruby Prosser Scully is a clinical reporter for the Medical Republic. Ruby, you attended the March for Justice in Sydney earlier this week. Tell us a little bit about it. So the marches came on the heels of some pretty serious conversations about discrimination and sexual violence towards women in Australia both within the halls of the Australian government and across wider society. First with the allegations of rape and sexual harassment within Parliament House. But as the weeks progressed, the lack of action on the allegations and even acknowledgement of the crimes, any investigations and the subsequent attempts to discredit the women led to a boiling point. And that spilled over into fiery marches in around 40 or more cities and towns across the country last Monday. And what was the overall feeling like among the crowd on Monday? So thousands marched, donned in black, to demand better protection and justice for women. And at Town Hall where I joined, there were people ranging from schoolgirls to greyhaired seniors, and electricity and anger was in the air. Speakers and signs both conveyed the sense of frustration at authorities for not taking gendered violence and discrimination seriously. A great many of the signs were directed specifically at Scott Morrison and Christian Porter and other members of the government. One sign said, women want justice. Another said, what part of no don't you still get? Another one next to me said, 95% of rapists get off. Rule of law is failing us all. Change the laws, change the attitudes. For many, this may be just one part of a long history of struggle for equality and respect. But it struck me as altogether new when I heard a young girl in her late teens or early 20s say to her friend next to her, the fact that we have to still be marching for this. That moment really drove home the way that despite decades of action, strengthening laws and improving the representation of women in positions of authority, some of the most very basic asks, like taking women's allegations as credible, are seemingly still so far from being the default. 
And at these times, there can be significant stress for victims of sexual violence, even if they have managed to put that aside, perhaps for years. And that's particularly the case in the last month. Absolutely. The dominance of sexual violence in the national conversation right now can be incredibly triggering for people who may have a history of trauma, whether it's harassment, rape, sexual violence. Uh, and this may have been something that they dealt with you know, many decades ago. So the experts that I spoke to about this were really urging clinicians to be on the lookout for heightened levels of distress amongst their patients. But of course, doctors are also human beings, and this may be something that their colleagues or indeed themselves are struggling with at this time. And one of the biggest sort of drivers of this is that um, we've seen on social media sites such as Twitter, people coming forward with uh, incredibly tragic details of experiences of trauma that they've undergone and the lasting ramifications that they've had to deal with over their lives. While on the one hand, this kind of discussion is incredibly liberating for people and does people a service of letting people know just how prevalent sexual violence is against women, it can also be troubling to both disclose that yourself or to be exposed to those kind of feelings and identify with those experiences that other people are sharing. So as a result, I spoke to a number of experts and some of the things that they were suggesting were if you have patients who are experiencing more nightmares, insomnia, more alcohol and other substance use, now would be a really good time to check on them. And Professor Jayashri Kalkani, who's a professor of psychiatry at Monash University, really urged clinicians to be aware that mental health symptoms do fluctuate with various environmental, social and current topics that are being discussed. So just because somebody has had an experience of violence or trauma in their history and, you know, for many years seemingly have that under control, that's not to say that at this time that might not re-emerge and become a problem for them again. So what might some of the symptoms of someone that may have undisclosed trauma present with in a general practice situation? Well, it may be just vague mental health symptoms like chronic pain, um, otherwise unexplained physical or mental symptoms. And Associate Professor Laura Tazia, who's the Deputy Lead of the Sexual Abuse and Family Violence Program at the University of Melbourne, uh, said that there was a common misconception among clinicians that when dealing with rape, the most common uh, issue or presentation that they'll have to deal with is the immediate aftermath of an assault happening. But the reality is, is that the most common presentation is actually many years after the event. And that might be the first time somebody has spoken about. Uh, for this reason, it, it, it is important to kind of have this on the radar as a possible explanation for strange symptoms and and symptoms that don't otherwise have a clear cause behind them. And is there any research in terms of the amount of women who might present to general practice who have experienced sexual violence in their life? So Professor Tazia undertook some research on women in waiting rooms and general practices, and her study found that 45% of women, so almost one in two women, had a history of sexual violence in their lifetimes, which is just an astronomical number. But not all people who have suffered sexual violence will be triggered by other events. Isn't that right, Ruby? For some people, the, the identifying with the story of uh, somebody in the media 
will bring back their own experiences and potentially re-traumatise them. But interestingly enough, other high-profile cases of, of rape and sexual violence, such as Eurydice Dixon, Jill Ma, those were slightly different to what we're seeing at the moment. And what makes them different is that that was sort of stranger danger, a man lurking in an alleyway, sort of kidnapping and harming a woman. Whereas what's occurring now and the stories that we're hearing now are much more representative of what the majority of victims experience in our society. And what that is, is that the allegations are that these were perpetrated by somebody known to the victim, sometimes uh, an intimate relationship with them rather than a stranger. And research does suggest that these people actually have worse mental health comes, people who are assaulted within the context of a, an intimate relationship than someone who is assaulted by a stranger. And there's another layer to this, which Professor Kalkani drew attention to. And that is when she sees clients in her clinic, they see a situation that she refers to as a double whammy, which is to say that a person is traumatised both by the initial instance of being abused or harassed or raped. And, and this might be the case, for example, with a young child who uh, could be abused by their stepfather, for example. That's its own trauma. But a second trauma comes into play when they seek help or protection from somebody who's supposed to care for them, say their mother, and they're told to just keep quiet about it and, and not say anything or, or that it didn't happen. And we're seeing echoes of that happening within the conversation at the moment, wherein people are seeing people at the highest echelons of society who really should be there to set the standard of moral behaviour and protect the country as a whole. These people, whether they're sort of capable of it or the perception of it, that they may be guilty is leading to a lot of trauma and a sense of betrayal and anger among people who are, again, reliving that experience of being betrayed by the people who are supposed to protect them and care for them the most. And the number of women in Australia who have experienced sexual assault is staggering, Ruby. It's terrible that we even have to have this conversation, but basically if it isn't you, and I hope for most of our listeners it isn't you, but if you haven't been the victim of sexual assault, then you most certainly know someone who has, even if that person has not disclosed it to you. Absolutely. Figures suggest that around one in six Australian women have experienced at least one sexual assault since the age of 15. And as we said, one in two have been sexually harassed. To put it into perspective, that means more than 200,000 adults are sexually assaulted each year. You know, as we've sort of focused on, on patients here, but female GPs are obviously not immune to sexual harassment in their lives and within the workplace. It's worth being particularly cognizant that this might be a, a vulnerable time for a lot of people in the profession. Adjunct Professor Jan Coles at Monash University studied the experience of doctors who have been assaulted. She gave one example of uh, a GP who had been sexually assaulted in the clinic room and then continued seeing patients throughout the rest of the day. And that's just, uh, you know, I can't speak for the exact reasons behind that, but, you know, there is such a, a sort of culture of getting on with it, subsuming one's own sort of issues at home or whatever it might be to get the job done and the idea that one might experience something like that and continue working and carrying on is, is, is really tragic. And in a similar way, as we've seen in the sort of allegations of what's happening in Parliament House, 
Many GPs have experienced something similar here, which is to say that most often when these situations occur, the perpetrator is more than anyone else likely to be a supervisor or a senior medical man who benefits off the value of that disparity in power and the idea that the person, that, you know, the younger woman can't actually say something without fear of repercussions for her career. In the research that Professor Coles has done, she reported that very few women ended up reporting the harassment and the biggest fear that they had was potential damage to their career. So this isn't something that we should just care about because it's people in the community. She pointed out this is happening across all facets of society. It's happening, we've seen in recent cases, it These things occur within medicine, it occurs in the law, it occurs in politics, and as a result, we can't just try to fix one element of society. So, you know, having new regulations or trying to fix the culture, you know, within general practice, within surgery, within the legal profession and hope that this goes away, this is something that's pervasive throughout society and as a result really needs a cultural fix. Then there's also the fact that victims have to contend with the public also trying to discredit their account of what might have happened to them. Absolutely. And so one of the things that's so challenging to deal with in this scenario that's playing out through the media and politics is, again, it having echoes with people's own individual experiences of not being believed, of their stories not being taken credibly, of having the first instance of being traumatized, being assaulted, but then trying to seek out justice and then having that your, you know, yourself, your loved ones being their name dragged through the muck, all sorts of questions being raised about one's personality, you know, one's virtue, one's previous sexual experiences, and that compounding onto the trauma and the horrors of the whole experience, not just the instance itself, but the arduous process of trying to seek out justice. Seeing this happen to other women now in high profile positions in the government, you know, in other uh, spheres of society just sort of underscores that, you know, even these people who otherwise are very close to the nexus of power, who have everything going for them in a lot of ways, you know, well-educated, articulate, you know, aspirations of, of being in politics, still having to undergo those same barriers and those same traumatic experiences in a quest that... A quest to get justice, which so often is unfortunately not delivered to victims of sexual violence, can be re-triggering for a lot of people. Ruby, thank you. Thank you so much, Francine.